Oh, I wonder sometimes if God is laughing at us in his experiment of putting men and women together. Because it is quite the experiment when you put a man together and a woman together, and especially when enter into marriage, because we already know that we are opposites. We are quite different. And beyond being opposites because of man and woman, then we have different likes and different dislikes and things that make us mad and things that make us happy and the way we function in life. Have you ever noticed that when you're dating someone, opposites attract, but when you're married to someone, opposites attack? Stop and think about it for a moment. I know that was my wife and I. Opposites are what drew us together, and then opposites is what put in a spot about a year and a half in where we were about ready to throw the towel in because of being opposites and how we were attacking each other. Most of you know what I'm talking about. Most of us marry somebody who is totally opposite personality and dislikes and likes. Now, some of you in this room are single. And I said this a few weeks ago. Some of you are like, oh man, we're doing a marriage series. I don't want to hear about marriage. Let me tell you, if you're single, this is the best time to be thinking about marriage. It's a lot better to think about it and be prepared with what do you envision, what is God laying upon your heart that is Christ-centered to do that now and learn the foundations now. So if you're single, please, I want to encourage you, don't, don't close down and say, oh, he's doing the marriage series. For some of you, you're going, man, I'm just newly single and I don't know if marriage is ever my future again. Again, what a great time to learn and say, okay, God, the first one didn't work out. Maybe things didn't go right. I didn't plan it that way. But God has a word for you to say, as you think down the road in the future, if there's going to be someone in my life, let's do it in a way that's going to honor God. I want to talk today about the tension and the blessing of opposites in a covenant partnership called marriage. Our spiritual enemy, the evil one, Satan wants to use those opposites. He wants to use those opposites so that we can compete against one another when God wants to use those opposites so we can complete one another. And when God has given you somebody in a marriage covenant relationship, the idea is oneness and to complete one another. Let's review before we get into our third promise today. Promise number one, which was week one, is this, that I promise that God will be my number one priority and my spouse will be my number two. If you're going to have a marriage that is God-honoring and Christ-centered, then we've got to pursue God first. He has to be number one, and my spouse is my number two. Remember we talked about, wouldn't it be great to go home one day and say, Mom and Dad, I found my number two. Not I found the one. I found the person who's supposed to be in that second spot. Priorities, that God is first, my spouse is second, my kids are third, and my job and all the other stuff come in line after that. The promise number two is that I promise that I will always pursue my number two. But as we learned last week, we learned to pursue our number two by pursuing our number one. And as we pursue God, he teaches us then how to pursue our number two and how do we do that. Now write this down. This is promise number three. I promise our marriage will be about we and not me. Too often marriages get messed up because it's all about me and my happiness, me and how I feel versus how are we in this together. Genesis 2.24 says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Last week we covered that word united, 
and the two will become one flesh. All of our promises are coming out of this one passage of Scripture of how God set marriage up. And today I want to focus in on that word one. What does that word one mean? The word means united. It means all together. It means completely joined as one. And the two will be united and they'll become one. They'll be joined. They'll be completely together. I like the way Solomon said it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was talking about two and how one may be overpowered, but two can stand strong. He said a cord of three strands is not quickly or easily broken. A cord of three strands. I like to picture marriage kind of like two that become one. For example, example, like the husband and the wife, if Brian and I were trying to run a three-legged race, you enter into a three-legged race, and what do you do? One person comes and puts their leg down like this, the other person comes and puts their leg side by side, and then someone ties a rope or a, a something around it to tie those two together, and what happens in marriage is I say, I'm putting myself in, your spouse says, I'm putting myself in, and then we tie a rope around that, and that rope is Christ, a cord of three strands that cannot be broken. What happens, though, is we say, well, I want to go this way, while she says, no, I want to go that way. You'll never win the race unless you have your eyes looking forward, a vision of Christ, and Christ is directing you, and you say, we march in step, a cord of three strands that cannot be broken is when Christ is involved and he wraps us around. This is why today... We talk about partnership and talk about the we and not the me. I want to reiterate, though, something before we get too deep in this idea of partnership. And it's something we started with a message with a few weeks ago, that marriage is a covenant and not a contract. And we mess that up in America. We think we've entered into a contractual relationship. To people today all over the world will treat marriage as a contract. We'll treat it like it's just a piece of paper. I have this piece of paper here, and it says that you do your part, I do my part. Let's sign a dotted line, and when you quit doing your part, or I quit doing my part, we get out of the contract. That's not God's plan. But that's how we've been taught, and that's how we've been raised according to the American culture. You can see a great picture of this in the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, when the people are whining to God and they're saying, God, why don't you answer our prayers? God, we've been seeking your face. We've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, and you're not answering our prayers. Where are you, God? And God basically says, men, you've been unfaithful to your wives, and therefore, I'm not answering your prayers. Look at the text in 2.14. He says, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Not marriage contract. Marriage covenant. He says, you came together in your youth and entered into a relationship, and now you've just thrown it away. And he says, that's hindering your prayer life. I want you to notice The important part. The scripture says the wife, the marriage covenant, not the contract. What's the difference? A contract is based on mutual distrust. We think, well, you're probably going to break some things in this. I'm going to break some things in this. And so let's have a contract that I don't fully trust you. It's it's the idea that I I am in as far as you are in. That if you do me wrong, then I can get out. If you're renting your home or an apartment that you live in, you have a contract. And it says if you don't pay, you don't what? You don't stay. 
You have to hold up your end of the contract. There's also some language in a rental agreement that says the landlord is supposed to do A, B, C, D, and E. And if they don't do that, you can lean upon that part of the contract to say, I'm getting out because they're not doing their part. That's a contract. It's how a lot of people treat marriage. Think, well, you do your part, I do my part, we're good to go. But if you don't do your part, or I don't do my part, then one of us has the right to get out. If you do your part, then we're good. I do my part, we're good. A covenant is so different. A a covenant is based on a mutual commitment. It's an unending, totally binding commitment, and it can be maintained even by one person. A a covenant can be maintained by one person. You may break this, but I'm not going to break my covenant vows or my covenant promises because I made that covenant promise before God. In other words, I'm all in. Every bit of me, I'm totally in, completely, 100%. I don't go into the marriage thinking, well, there's a back door for me to escape down the road. I go in the mindset, I'm in this thing 100%. I'm giving my covenant vows not only before the state I live in, But more importantly, I'm giving my covenant vows. I am making promises before God in heaven. For richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, I commit to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we're in this relationship. We're in this marriage, a covenant relationship, totally binding. No escape plan, no way out. That divorce is not even an option it's not a word in our vocabulary that even comes in our marriage. I don't get into arguments and say, well, you keep, keep going. I'm going to divorce you. We don't even threaten that. Someone asked Ann Graham Lotz, the, the wife of Billy Graham, several years ago. We went through a tour of their, of their facility there and got a chance to see their home. Ask Ann Graham Lotz, did you ever want to divorce your husband or what happens if you want to divorce? Or did you ever dis- discuss divorce? She said, no, I never wanted to divorce him. I thought of killing him many times. Sometimes that's so true. But divorce was not to be spoken of or even dreamed of that we don't even give Satan that foothold to say, let's drip that into our marriage. Let me go further detail with this. In the original Hebrew, the idea of marriage was there was a cutting. There was a, a binding blood agreement. It's more than a contract. It's actually a blood covenant. In the Old Testament, what would happen is many times in marriage, A bride and groom would stand before a priest. And in a marriage relationship, they would have their hands open like this. And he would make a small slit in their hand, in her hand and his hand. Then he would join the hands together to show a blood covenant. That a relationship has just been bound together. And it's a relationship that's not supposed to be separated by any. Man, it's actually a a rather beautiful picture of marriage that he's established now in the New Testament. He's established the gift of of lovemaking for that covenant marriage only. In his perfect economy, a virgin male will consummate after the, after the, with the virgin female and there would be a cutting or a shedding of blood. There would be a blood covenant and you see the physical picture of two becoming one. That's why it's so important and why God teaches remaining abstinent until marriage. It's one of the many reasons why this gift of lovemaking is supposed to be reserved for only for the marriage bed. But what happens today? People see marriage as a contract, 
and not a covenant. And so therefore, before we're married, since marriage really isn't that big of a deal anyway, then we often do what married people do before we're actually married. What kind of married things? Well, you start to give your heart over to somebody and you, and you let that heart go too much. Just exposing your life and your head and your heart and your hurts and your dreams to too many different people. This girl meets this cute guy and says, oh, I love you. You make me so complete. I love you so much. And just pours out to her heart to him and gives him everything of her heart. And a guy then breaks up. And what happens? She's brokenhearted and says, I've given everything to this guy. I've unloaded my mind and my heart and my soul to him, and he's now just walked away. You have those married-like conversations and even a married-like relationship. Before long, though, you start moving in some clothes into his place or to her place or your toothbrush is at her place, and you start doing that, and you start practicing marriage. And you start practicing relationship, but then what happens is you break up and you're actually preparing yourself for down the road when you enter into marriage that actually you're ready for divorce. Because you've already walked through heartache one time or two times or five times or ten times because you've given yourself over to somebody else. And now you're saying, well, you go your way and I'll go my way. So when you enter into marriage, it's a contract and it's not a covenant marriage. What happens is that our culture sells us a big fat lie. Our culture tells us, ah, you want to kick the tires before you get married, don't you? Our cultures tell us, hey, go ahead, move in, live together, try it out, because why would you want to enter into marriage if it's not going to work? You don't know how she's going to behave and how she's going to think, or you don't know about him and how he leaves his socks around or how he thinks with just one box. We say, try that thing out for a little while, and if it's going well, then go ahead and move in. Let me tell you what psychologists are discovering today. They're discovering that doesn't work. Did you know that people who live together before marriage, which is very common in our society today, 80% of them end in a divorce. Let that sink in for a moment. We're already at a 50 to 60% rate. If you don't, 80% of marriages that start off living together end in divorce. You can do your own research. You can check that out. But marriage is a holy covenant before God. So we don't talk about divorce. We don't make that a priority in our life. Let me just say, and I can say this with all compassion I can, for those of you in this room that have walked through divorce, my purpose today is not to heap condemnation on you. I truly believe that God's grace is bigger and greater than any of our disgraces, anything that we've ever done that doesn't honor God. But he surely doesn't want you to walk through that pain and that trial again. Doesn't want you to go through that suffering. I know from walking many couples trying to hold a marriage together that going through in a divorce is extremely painful. That's why God says, I hate divorce. He doesn't say, I hate the divorcees. He says, I hate divorce because he knows what it does to a person. He knows what it does to a family. He knows what it does to the kids. So I'm not trying to stir up any kind of pain or guiltiness if you walk through divorce because stats would tell us probably if I had you, hey, stand up, half of this room or more might stand up and say, yeah, I've been through it. And if you haven't been through it yourself, maybe your mom or your dad, someone close to you has. But God has a much better plan. And God can restore and can repair. If you say, I've walked through that fail of marriage, he's giving you the tools, just some of the things we've been talking about a few weeks, to prepare for the future. 
So I don't share this to condemn the divorcee. God's grace is much greater, much greater than any of our disgraces. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you get married, though, you stand before God and you make a promise to God that you enter into a blood covenant and the two become one. So it's not about me. It's not about you meeting my needs. What about me? No, that's not the plan. What about me? I want to be happy. It's about we. It's about together us serving him. It's about the we serving the he. Our one together serve a covenant relationship that we serve God Almighty. And if he is number one in my wife's life and he's number one in my life, as we pursue him, then we grow together. And we serve him together as covenant partners. I want to talk about how we take our differences and bring them together so that we have godly results. Now, I could probably spend 10 weeks doing this type of idea. We're going to try to cover uh, just a, a touch of it in the next 10 minutes or so. Covenant partnership, what does it include? Let's look at two foundational thoughts from Ephesians chapter 5. A covenant partnership includes two things. One includes a godly leadership, and two it includes mutual submission. Let's start with this idea of mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. To whom? The Bible says to one another. Why? Out of reverence for who? Reverence for Christ. Again, what is that? He's number one. Go back to the first priority. I submit to my wife. She submits to me. What? Out of reverence. Why? Because Christ wants to be number one. It's not all about me, what I want. I've got to have it my way, my way, my way. I've got to be happy. You know, sometimes I have to submit to some of her needs. She submits to some of my needs. Why? Because we want to honor Christ together. What does it mean? It means we enter into this marriage and it's not a 50-50. I do my part, you do your part. That's a contract built on mutual distrust. That's what that is. I'll do unto you as you do unto me. You're nice to me, I'm nice to you. You're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. You get me, I'll get you. No, that's what the world teaches. It's not what God's kingdom teaches. That's why you, that's why you lay down your life. As a covenant is, I'll do unto Christ as he's done to me. It's not a 50-50. It is I'll lay down my life to serve you. I'll submit to you as unto submitting to the Lord, as reverence for the Lord, so that together we can better serve Him. Let's talk a, a minute about godly leadership. And I'm going to let Scripture speak here very clearly. These words are not mine words, but sometimes they're hard to receive. So don't get mad at me, all right? If you don't like what the Bible says, you take that up with God. Here's what it says, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands... As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now, I've heard some women say, if he is the head, I'm the neck. I'm still going to tell him which way to turn. Hmm. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I understand this passage bothers many ladies in this room. Some of you hear that and you're like, I know that's what the Bible says, but God, can we take that part out? Rightfully so. I understand that sometimes women have a real hard time with this passion. I think for good reason, because for many, many years, women have not been treated fairly. 
for many years. I mean, women have been underpaid, women not been given a chance to lead, and the list goes on and on and on. But I would even say that, in my opinion, based on my pastoral experience, one of the main reasons why women get so angry about this verse is because they have been told, because they have been, been around what I would call distorted leadership. Not God honoring leadership, not even godly leadership. It is men who are abusive and dominant and controlling and manipulative, and Christian men can take God's word and they can use it as a sword to cut and to hurt. And sometimes Christian men have been, been guilty of using God's word to manipulate women sometimes, and that is not godly leadership. That is abusive, and I believe those men will one day answer to God for how they've treated the ladies in their life. There's another side of this distortion, and I think that's the passive man, the man who has no backbone, no willingness to stand up and fight for anything, the man who doesn't make decisions, who abdicates leadership to the women, who's content to sit back and play video games and act like a 12-year-old and watch sports all day long, and it's not godly leadership. So when a woman hears submit to a man, she says, I'm not submitting to that kind of man. A guy who's been abusive? A guy who has no backbone? Why would I want to submit? And guys, we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to look at the mirror, the Word of God. We've got to look directly in it and say, am I that kind of man? Am I that kind of man? Because I truly believe that when a woman has a godly man who is not abusive, has a godly man who is, who is not just a advocating their role of leadership and they're really pursuing God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. I believe that women would say, I'll follow that man. Am I right, ladies? But many times that's not the type of men we have in our lives. See, a lot of guys say, well, that intimidates me. I'm not sure about that. Does that mean I have to make all the decisions? No. That's not leadership. Making all the decisions is not leadership. That's dictatorship. There's a big difference. I, I want to think about it, about it this way, okay? Christ is the head of our church, right? He's the head of Centerpoint Christian Church. He's in charge. He has put me in a role as pastor of Centerpoint Christian Church. The preacher at Centerpoint Christian Church called me 13 years ago to say, plant this church. I have to listen to God hear from him, do the best I can to direct us in the way I think he's guiding us and directing us in the church, and one day I will stand accountable for that, for that role of leadership that he's put me in. Now, would it be wise for me to get involved in every single ministry that there's involved in this church and have to tell every ministry, yes, no, no, you can't, yes, you can, no, you can't. I tried that early on in the years of, mar of this ministry and realized that it doesn't work. And it doesn't work in your home. That's not leadership. That's actually bad leadership. That's being in control. That does not allow anyone else to lead. As the leader, one of the most important things we can do is we kind of point and say, that's God's direction. Let's get there. God's lead us in that direction. Let's go in that direction. How do we get there? It's kind of like in 1932, the Game 3 of the World Series, Babe Ruth stands up to bat. One of the most memorable moments in sports. What does he do? He stands up, he looks back, and he points out to center field. You've probably seen the pictures or seen the video or something. Points out to center field. The next pitch, left-hander tags it, home run to center field. Now, some would say, well, that was arrogant. Maybe there was some arrogance. 
But also there's a whole lot of vision. He's saying, I'm taking that ball out of here. A whole lot of direction. Gentlemen, that's what you and I do. That's what, that's what I do for the church, and that's our point in leadership. Here, here's, what we're, here's where we're going. That, this is our leadership. Here's what we stand for in our home. Here's how we're going to stand. Here's what we're about. That's leadership. And you sit down with your spouse, sit down with your wife, and you discuss those things, and you say, okay, according to Scripture, who are we going to be as a family? Who are we going to be as a husband and a wife? And you say, this is where we're going. It doesn't mean you have to do all the work. It doesn't mean you have to make all the decision. But this is where we want to go. Proverbs says where there is no vision, the people cast restraint or they perish. And so we as men in a home, we give vision and say this is the kind of home that we want to be. Are the decisions we're making helping us be that kind of home? Where there is no vision, the marriage, you've got two people trying to go in two different directions and nothing gets done. You lead. Here's what we're about. Here's what we stand for. When we stand for this, then there will be some things that we won't do or we won't participate in or we won't allow in our home. You can sit down and say, honey, what has God put inside of us? Let's prayerfully figure this out together. What's going to be important in our marriage? What's going to be important to raise our children? You come up together with a blueprint and then you let them do the work. For instance, we're adding on to the building. I think you've probably seen. Do you guys see that the pad is now in? This week, hopefully, some footers will go in. We've helped figure out the blueprint for that building. And now your building team's kind of standing back and going, okay, they're going to town. And they're moving rock and they're digging things and things that we don't understand. But we know the blueprint because we know where we're heading. And we check in with them every now and then. Hey, how's the blueprint going? We have any hiccups? Are we having any challenges? Let me just tell you, we have some challenges. There's a lot of rock underneath this ground. And sometimes that costs a little bit extra money. You'll have that in your family. You'll have a blueprint, and then there'll be some challenges. So you sit down as a man, and you say, honey, we have some challenges. Let's figure out some of these challenges. Let's remember who we're trying to be and what we're trying to get do. And together, you say, here's what we're standing for. Let's work around the challenges. You may say, yeah, but she won't follow me. Guys, I got to tell you, that's, that's kind of a lazy excuse. That's us men being kind of wimpy men. That's us men not taking our leadership and our response, our, our responsibility seriously. So how do you do that? Well, by example. How do you lead? Be a man of God. Don't be a man of video games and social media and all this other stuff. Be a man of God. Stand up and lead. Take the sword of the Spirit and don't cut her with it. Cut the enemy with it. Be a man of God. Turn off the television. Be a man of God. Set aside some of the hobbies. Be a man of God, a man who will be in the Word. Be a man who will be in prayer. Be a man of integrity. Be a man that leads that way, and your wife will say, where you're going, I'm following. Where you're leading, I'm, I'm going with you. Be a man of purity. Be a man that will serve her. Be a man that will lay down your life, and you will watch as over time she'll respond beautifully to your leadership. But if it's a controlling, dictating leadership, she'll say, I don't want any of that. You say you want it to change? You want to step up and be that man? Get your eyes on Christ. Pursue Christ. Chase after Christ. Together, united with the court of Christ, you will walk in the direction of God's will. A court of three strands that cannot 
be broken. You've got to lead, men. God has put us in that role. God has put us here to lead. Don't control, though. Lead. Here's who we are. Here's what we stand for. Biblical leadership, mutual submission. It's not about me. It's about the we. That's what it's about. A fellow preacher tells a story about doing marriage for two of his best friends. He said he typed out the whole message for that day and sat down and had it all together and he started looking at it and realized he had a typo and instead of typing united, he typed the word untied. Notice that in that word, the two will be united. Look at the two words. There's only one letter out of place. It's the letter I. If I stays in the right place, we're united. If I get to the wrong place, we become untied. Where is your eye at today? What is your eye focused on today? What is your eye? Is it an eye of selfishness? Is it an eye of me? Is it an eye that takes care of me? Or is your eye going, I'm fixed on Christ? If you think about marriage, you look at it in terms of a triangle like this with God at the top and a wife at one side and a husband at the other side, you pursue Christ. When she pursues Christ and you pursue Christ and you say, my eye is fixed on Christ, she's pursuing Christ, you're pursuing Christ, what happens? You start growing together as you both pursue Christ as he's number one. I promise our marriage will be about we and not me. When you make this promise, you are saying, I'm in this thing for better or for worse, no matter what. It's not about me. It's about the we. Even there's some fault on the other side of the bed, I will do my part because we're in a covenant relationship and I promise to work in this partnership. I'll work on a mutual submission and godly leadership. I promise our marriage will be about we and not me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we honor you today. God, we, uh, we want to pray today, Lord, for marriages in this room. According to the, the studies and the stats that are out there, Lord, the chances are there's a number of marriages in this room that are just existing. There's a number in this room that are really struggling. Father, I pray no matter where we are at, whether we're in that existing stage, we're struggling stage, things are going great stage, Lord, I pray we put our eyes upon you, that we stay focused on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, we put our eyes on you, trusting you to, to show us how to be godly people. Lord, I pray for the men in this room that we would pursue God with all of our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all of our strength, that we would lead in that way. I pray for ladies in this room, Lord. They'd pursue God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. They'd be willing to then submit to godly leadership that they, is demonstrated in their home. Father, we just need your help in this world when it comes to marriage. I pray it starts right here in this room in the church. I pray the church sets the example for this world of what marriage is. That it's a covenant, it's not a contract. I pray, Lord, you would rescue any marriage struggling today, that you would do a mighty work. Father, I thank you for the covenant relationship we have with Jesus. His blood shed on the cross made us pure and made us whole, covered our sin.
We celebrate that now, Lord, in this time of communion. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.